Welcome back, my patient podcasting family. Thank you guys so much for your patience with my last episode's debacle. It is all figured out now, though. We're completely good to go. This episode is ready, and I think it's another really good one. Of course, I'm pretty sure I say that like every single episode. I'm incredibly biased, but I feel like my podcast is great because I have this amazing opportunity to interview these people who make my podcast wonderful. So today we're going to be back at the National Museum of the Marine Corps, and we're speaking with Ben Christie, who's the Collections Chief and Aviation Curator. And this is the part two in our series. And Last time we spoke a little bit more about the collections themselves, but today we have some fun stories about two particular pieces of aviation that are really, really interesting and have a fun story with toilet paper and the rebreaking and fixing of a casting because of a messed up thumb. So I really hope that you enjoy today's episode. And again, thank you guys so much for your patience. I really appreciate the people who continue to download the podcast. And uh, you guys, you guys are awesome. Thank you so much for your support. And without any further ado, let's go ahead and get this episode rolling. So we did talk a little bit um, with Owen about some of the different items that you have, kind of more about the collections and collections management and things. But the few items that you wanted to talk about are also available on the website, and I'll include the link and everything in the episode description. But you have two two particular flying objects that are of great interest. Which one do you want to talk about first? Let's talk about the Dauntless. The Dauntless that was found in the bottom... of Lake Michigan? Indeed. Um, we have, all told, the museum holds about 180 aircraft, and there are 20 and a half of them in on display in the museum itself. One of the uh, aircraft that we added fairly recently was a Douglas SBD-3 Dauntless dive bomber, World War II vintage aircraft, um, which was recovered from Lake Michigan in the uh, 1990s. Um, the Dauntless was a particularly important aircraft for the Marine Corps Um, during World War II in that it was a key element in our close air support, uh, particularly uh, our flying them in the Philippines and early on in the war uh, over Guadalcanal. The particular one that we have, uh, which we received as a, uh, we traded airplanes with the National Naval Aviation Museum uh, to acquire this Dauntless and in exchange we, we gave them a aircraft out of our collection. It's like trading baseball cards. Sort of, yeah. Um, uh, involves a bit more paperwork, but yes, um, the this particular aircraft had actually flown with the Marines during World War II, but it hadn't, it didn't go overseas. And ultimately, it was the having served with the Marine Corps for a while, uh, it was transferred back to the Navy, and they used it in uh, aboard uh, a couple of very unique aircraft carriers uh, that were solely operated to train naval aviators, uh, so that you can get your carrier qualifications. And it was a lot safer to do this in the Great Lakes than it was necessarily in the Gulf of Mexico or off the East Coast, where you had very active German submarines. So our, our airplane went, uh, unfortunately, uh, was involved in a flight accident in the fall of 1943, as was actually not all that uncommon for uh, fledgling naval aviators. 
and uh, sank into the bottom of Lake Michigan and was recovered in 1991 by the, the uh, National Naval Aviation Museum uh, in Pensacola. Uh, again, I said we, we uh, acquired it in about 2004 timeframe and had originally intended to display it in the World War II gallery. But when we received it and started to take it apart, we discovered that its condition was a bit poorer than we originally thought. So we set it aside, opened the museum, and then came back to working on the aircraft over a, a long period of time. It's, uh, it's actually probably our most in-depth restoration that we've done. Better part of 60,000 man hours off and on for almost a decade, really. And what made it such an sort of exciting and challenging project for us is by happenstance, um, we have an, outst a, a, an outstanding docent, a, a gentleman named uh, uh, John Elliott, who is a started life actually as a dauntless rear gunner with the Marine Corps uh, that had a fairly lengthy Marine Corps career, and uh, particularly in the area of developing aerial ordnance. But he has easily forgotten more about Marine Corps aviation history than I can ever hope to learn. Years and years and years ago, he had the foresight to take out of the trash almost a complete set of factory drawings from Douglas for the Dauntlesses. So our aircraft, when it came out of Great Lake, Michigan, was pretty beat up. The engine had torn off in the accident. At least one boat anchor had gone through the tail. Um, Pensacola did, did do a restoration on the aircraft, and in doing so, they actually swapped the outer wing panels. So when we got the airplanes, our airplane was built as a SBD-3, but it had wings. Uh, one wing was from a Dash 4, and another one was from a Dash 5. So it was a bit of a kit bash, and there was a fair amount of corrosion. We intended to hang the airplane, but we discovered that corrosion, particularly in the engine mount, um, was so severe that the engine was at risk of falling off. That would be bad. Not ideal for hanging above human head. Crush a, crush a visitor, um, generally speaking, bad. Because we had these drawings, uh, we were able, our restoration uh, crew, uh, a bunch of very talented, uh, both civilian employees and active duty Marines, were able to take the airplane down to its smallest elements and rebuild where we needed to rebuild structurally to the original specifications and drawings. And so that airplane, although visitors will never see it, all the interior structure that we had replaced is exactly the same the same profile. We made the tooling uh, so that it would would have looked like it came out of the Douglas factory when it did. It was a true restoration. It is true. It is a true restoration. Thankfully, a lot of the other restorations we've had to do, generally speaking, have just had to be skin deep. The aircraft we get generally have been in pretty good condition and don't really need this level or amount of teardown. We selected to mark the airplane in the colors flown by uh, Major Richard Mangrum, who uh, commanded VMSB 232, which was the, um, the Dauntless Squadron that landed first on Henderson Field on, in August 1942, just as, uh, as the Marines were just take, starting to take the island. It was sort of the first offensive push back against the Japanese. Mangrum goes on to receive uh, the Navy Cross uh, for a particular mission where uh, he turned, he and the rest, and 232 and, and, and a, a hodgepodge of other aircraft turned aside a, uh, a large Japanese reinforcement, a reinforcing convoy. And, and 242 and the rest of what was known as the Cactus Air Force, uh, again, a conglomeration of Army, uh, some Navy airplanes, um, and, and a few others, 
bore the brunt of, of Japanese efforts to retake the island. In any case, we decided to repaint the airplane as if it was his. And uh, again, we, we lucked out. Um, we are, our sister organization is the Marine Corps History Division, uh, which is also, also at Quantico. And their archives branch uh, is phenomenal. And they happen to have a personal collection of images and diaries and uh, other materials collected by Mangrum's gunner. And so we found these uh, three beautiful walk-around pictures of the aircraft just as they had landed at Guadalcanal. Um, and to my knowledge, these, we, we had never, I had never seen these images printed before. But from that, we were able to spend a long time, what, we, what I call perfecting the imperfections um, when it came to the paint schemes. There's always a paint regulation that says you have to paint the airplane this way, use this color, the paint goes here, the markings are this size, they have to go this way. Once you spend enough time looking at shots in the field, for, you know, original photography, you'll discover the only time the airplane matches the regulation is immediately after it comes out of the factory or maybe after it comes over a, a major overhaul. You know, Later that afternoon, I guarantee you, someone else has done something else to the paint job and it's gonna be buried. It's really funny that you say that because, you know, whenever you think about the military in any type of way, you really think of severe structure and severe roles. But from what I'm hearing from you guys, they don't paint their planes the way that they're supposed to. And they're adding all this metal to their pins and, and wearing their, their pins on their shirts in the wrong order. They're all just a bunch of rebels. Well, there's room for in individuality. Uh, Jack Elliott, who I mentioned earlier, the, the gentleman who, you know, uh, unbelievably saved those factory drawings. He has a... a his tagline is much is left to the individual discretion of the painter. And in a lot of cases, you know, the, the, the markings on these airplanes, uh, the, the aircraft that uh, went headed to Guadalcanal were fresh out of a replacement pool. So they didn't have any unit markings. They were plunked onto a carrier deck and, and sailed out to sea. And so they were marked underway. Um, and so you probably had, uh, well, we know at least two different people painted the, sh the ship numbers, the aircraft, the individual number to identify the airplane, because they're in two different places and they're taped differently. So probably two different Lance Corporals probably were assigned to go out and tape and then paint. And one did one side and one did the other. And, and there, were, there were a lot of things like that. One of the national insignia we noticed is slightly twisted out of the orientation it's supposed to have and all kinds of things. And so we spent a lot of time, like I said, perfecting these imperfections. And if you walk around the airplane today, you know, a lot of the visitors won't necessarily notice it. You really have to be eagle-eyed about it, but they're all there. Um, and you could tell, um, you, you could see that kind of individuality. And so that speaks to sort of the, the conviction we had with this particular restoration to really do this one right. And I'm additionally happy about it because we also hung the airplane in a very, at least in a museum setting, fairly unique way. Um, there are plenty of Dauntlesses on exhibit at other aviation museums, history museums across the country. Most of them are displayed on the ground. You know, there are several that are displayed hanging, but they're almost always displayed flat and level, you know, normal flight attitude. We wanted, this is a dive bomber. We wanted to put it into a dive. A textbook dive as taught um, in the era was about a 70 degree nose down attitude. Well, we couldn't do that because of our roof line. In the building. So we got it to about 54 degrees, which is what the kind of, you know, close enough. But we, so we have the aircraft displayed with the dive brakes open. The, uh, we have two very nice uh, figures in the cockpit, you know, in the positions in which they would have had during a combat dive. So the airplane is 
very dynamic. You walk in the building and it's one of the first things you see. Uh, and particularly at that angle, there are some great places on the second deck overlooks where you can look straight up the propeller arc, you know, in, in through the gun sight and, and, and see the pilot look at right, looking right back at you. Really fantastic. It sounds like you guys have done a tremendous amount of work to make everything flow as accurately as possible. The way that you guys have done the ins restored the inside as well, and then how you have everybody in the right position. And then even with um, earlier when I was speaking with Owen, he was talking about the statues that you guys have, the figures of people that are actually cast after real people mm -hmm. and you did the all this figures? research. Yeah. So, I mean, it sounds like you guys are doing a stellar job of making things as historically accurate as possible. We certainly try. And, and, and uh, you know, and some of that is, is I'm not going to say it's unnecessary, but I mean, we could we could turn out a good product without going to those extreme measures, but we want to. I mean, the the we're honoring the Marines whose story we're telling. Um, and so, you know, that's that's our small way of paying them back uh, by making sure we get these details right. And in some cases, the details are really quirky. They're kind of fun to do. And, and especially from coming from the aviation side of the house, aviation nuts are the ultimate museum nerds. You look at various forums and there are, you know, uh, years worth of arguments over what exact shade of sea blue was used in this era, this month, whatever. Or for the Dauntless, we had a good conversation as to what to what to paint the interior, what color. And there's a lot of research on what the what the interior green, specific green would be like. When we got the airplane, there were at least four different shades of green in it. We couldn't, we knew some had been applied in the 1990s. Uh, but again, I mentioned since the wing, since the airplane was a bit of a kit bash, we kept finding these different colors. We finally decided we matched the green um, that was found inside the vertical fin. We figured that was an area of the airplane that wouldn't have been repaired, wouldn't have been replaced. We knew it wasn't damaged in the crash or when the aircraft was recovered. So we figured that was as close to what the original would be. It didn't match what the regulation color was supposed to be at all. So we're calling it Douglas Green, Douglas Aircraft Green. Douglas Unregulated Green. Exactly. <laughs> well, and again, this, you know, again, reaching back to Jack Elliott's story about, you know, much is left to the individual discretion. All of these colors were hand mixed. A, you know, a, a factory worker took, a, you know, white and a, a color and mixed it together by hand and then took the spray gun and sprayed it. And these airplanes were, you know, this airplane was produced in 1942. And so, you know, the Douglas was turning these airplanes out as fast as they could be. And yes, there's a Navy inspector to make sure it's all being done to the contract specs. He's not about to turn an airplane around because Douglas used a slightly different shade of green in the inside spaces. They kind of had bigger fish to fry. They had bigger fish to fry. The, but the we, specific color. But we wanted to worry about it because we knew we, we, we had the luxury to be able to really get it right. And so we did. And I'm really proud of that. This is, you know, again, of, I've, of my now quarter century of working in museums, and this is my fourth museum with a, with airplanes in it. That project was... You have a museum type. Yeah, I do. I, I, oh, I'm... I'm I, <laughs> you, pl uh, you plunk me in a historic house and I would be lost. I, I That would be bad. <laughs> you know, vintage doilies would just... Oh, no, I couldn't do it. No offense to historic homes. That's okay. I've, I've done quite a few of them and I'm madly, <laughs> I am madly in love with them. And I've shown them plenty of love, so don't Fair worry. Enough. Uh, but this project is one that, from a, as a as a curator, this is my probably my proudest project I've been on. Well, rightly so. It sounds really amazing. I wish that I could uh, be there to see it, but I'll definitely come as soon as you guys open. Hopefully soon. I do have a question. Mm -hmm. So, whenever you're thinking about the you know the military and then the different 
Navy and the Marines and you kind of don't, at least myself, I don't really associate the Marines super strongly with airplanes. I more mm. of associate them, you know, storming a beach and heavy gear running through the, the sand, mm -hmm. you know, just that's kind of what I think. And then you were also talking about the Dauntless kind of starting out as a, it was a Navy airplane yep. and then now it's in the care of the Marine. So can you kind of talk about the relationship between all that to someone who really doesn't know much about the the American military? Sure. Well, Marine aviation is now more than a century old. Our starts in the about the same time as U.S. naval aviation as a whole, 1911-1912 uh, time frame. The, the United States Marine Corps is a separate service branch, but it is a part of the Navy. And without you'd have an entirely other series of podcasts to discuss the, you know, the, the history of the Marine Corps and its relationship with the Navy. But when it comes to airplanes, well, until World War II, I'd say, the Marines, generally speaking, got Navy cast-offs, whatever the Navy was giving up for its airplanes, the, Navy, the Marine Corps would take. And so there wasn't a lot of um, consideration of Marine Corps aviation needs. Starting in the 1930s, the Marine Corps was Coming out of World War One, uh, where Marine aviation did send four squadrons to France, we didn't support the Marines. We were doing missions that were much more typical of what the uh, Army Air Corps was doing. We were bombing uh, German rail stations in Belgium and, and things like that. The, uh, the Marine Corps started to redesign itself to set itself up for success in World War II, but basically redesign itself as a purely amphibious force, which was designed to to either defend advanced bases or take bases to allow the Navy to then set up refueling stations or you know, other logistical things as they, as they marched across the Pacific. And to do that, you had to have airplanes with you. Um, you had to be able to defend the skies over the beachhead. You had to drive off enemy counterattacks or enemy shipping. And while we certainly, uh, the Navy by doctrine was going to support us, we also recognized that we needed to be able to defend our own skies. So marine aviation grows slowly after World War I into World War II, et cetera, but we're still basically dependent on Navy to supply us. So this Dauntless, um, for example, um, it was the Navy who you know, went out and bought the Dauntless as a dive bomber for their own needs. Um, and the Marine Corps simply took it and utilized it both for to attack enemy shipping, which is a more traditional Navy mission, but also to use it as a close air support aircraft, attack, attack enemy forces on the ground. It's still pretty typical, frankly, for aircraft types that both the Navy and the Marine Corps fly for the airplane to go back and forth, depending on any number of, of, of factors that for a period of its career, it'll, it'll fly with a Navy squadron or Navy squadrons and then get transferred over to the Marine side of the house for a while and then come back. The Navy as a whole is very good at trying to get the maximum value for the dollar, you know, get, get, get every flight hour of life out of an airplane. So depending on all kinds of other factors, the uh, program managers who actually own all the aircraft uh, will assign aircraft to the Navy side or the Marine Corps side, depending on sort of who needs what when. Okay. Okay. Well, that makes sense. So continuing on with our crafts of the sky theme that we have going on, we have a helicopter that we were going to talk about. Right. And uh, we're talking about our Sikorsky UH-34. And this is an aircraft with uh, another, uh, this aircraft has a great specific history to it. And we were absolutely thrilled to be able to add it to the collection 
and put it on display. And luckily, we acquired the aircraft at the same time the museum itself was undergoing its big expansion. And so we had the opportunity, we knew the museum was going to be closed to the public for a matter of a couple of months while some really heavy construction and cutting into the wall was going to happen. And so we had the opportunity to sort of sneak this airplane in during that construction timeframe. Uh, the helicopter in question, again, I mentioned it's, it's a UH-34D um, that has flew in Vietnam almost continuously from July 64 to May 1969 with a number of squadrons. And it was acquired by a private veterans group, uh, the Marine Helicopter Squadron 361 Veterans Association. Uh, they found it at a salvage yard in Arizona. They wanted to find a helicopter that of the, of the type that had flown uh, with that squadron in Vietnam. They restored it. Um, they operated it out of a workshop on Long Island, and uh, they started working on it in 2001, all volunteer effort, uh, a lot of heart, and they got it flying again. And then they, it would appear at air shows up and down the East Coast as far south as, uh, I think they went as far south as about Camp Lejeune. They took it to the uh, EAA's giant air show at Oshkosh one year. It appeared at a couple of events uh, in the D.C. area as well, and they had great success with it. But flying a 50-year-old helicopter is expensive. And so the helicopter actually came and visited uh, Quantico several years before it was donated to us. And at that point, the, the group started discussing the possibility of donating the helicopter to us in time. And ultimately, um, that's, uh, um, ultimately that, that's what occurred. So the, the helicopter was donated to the museum. Uh, it was actually flight delivered. So uh, I got, we got to orchestrate it landing in our parking lot, which was a lot of fun, but also exceedingly stressful. Uh, I probably won't do that again after <laughs> it, it, months, of, months of orchestration. And so we had the helicopter and, and now we had to decide how to display it. We knew from its service history, uh, like I said, it had flown with the Marine Corps multiple squadrons for uh, almost five years. And we, we had the opportunity to display it there in Leatherneck Gallery, right, right as you come in. And Leatherneck has a couple of big themes to it, but one of them is innovation. And that can either be a technological innovation or can be a doctrine innovation, how the Marine Corps fights. Looking at the service history for this particular helicopter, we, I settled on depicting it, um, how it appeared in August of 1965 at the start of what's called, what was called Operation Starlight. Starlight was the first of the major battles for the Marine Corps in Vietnam. The Marines had been in Vietnam for several years, uh, particularly uh, squadrons, but we were mostly supporting South Vietnamese operations. We weren't doing large ground operations ourselves on, until the summer of 1965. And Operation Starlight was uh, a combined arms operation. So you had air assault, you had amphibious landings, and you had a land mo a land element, all trying to compress a uh, Viet Cong unit into a small area and ultimately destroy it. The operation didn't entirely go as planned. Um, unfortunately, the battlefield reconnaissance failed to notice that a, a Viet Cong heavy weapons platoon was actually encamped inside one of the landing helicopter landing zones. And by this point in the war, the Viet Cong knew how to handle helicopters. They had fought them for, for, for years. So they let the first wave of helicopters land on the morning of 18 August, 1965. 
let the, the Marines got out. And when the second wave came in, they opened fire uh, with heavy machine guns and mortars and uh, RPG rounds. And the Marines from Hotel Company, 2nd Battalion, 4th Marines had to fight their way out of this just devastating fire. And they did. Um, and over the next couple of days, that unit and other Marine units did successfully complete the mission. There were three landing zones that day, um, LZ White, LZ Blue, and LZ Yellow, if memory serves. We've chosen to depict LZ Blue, which is the one that was inside that weapons platoon. We managed to find some, uh, there was a time life photographer who was on the scene at the time. So we used the photographs that he took. Um, we used some official Marine Corps images. And then we actually managed to I actually, we managed to interview a couple of Marines who were 17-year-old kids at the time uh, who, who fought on, on, in LZ Blue. So the section that the, the helicopter is displayed in what we call a big yet. So it has, it's not just the aircraft itself. You've got a full ground platform that is a slice of a dry rice paddy. The uh, LZ Blue was selected because that rice paddy was, being, was fallow that year. It wasn't being planted. Um, so you have the, the helicopter is, 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 is interacting with the ground. Um, we chosen to select it just as uh, what's known as a stick, um, but a, a line of Marines and a corpsman uh, have just exited the, muse exited the helicopter and are scrambling to cover. Um, and so you see on those cast figures' faces uh, a variety of emotions from anger to fear to you know, a uh, steely nerve. We positioned the door gunner in the helicopter as if he's returning fire um, at the, you know, at a Viet Cong scene, scene in the tree line, et cetera. From a restoration standpoint of the aircraft, aircraft was in pretty good shape when we got it. It was flyable. So, you know, uh, there was some, some minor corrosion issues we had to address. There was something like, like $350,000 worth of restoration done to get it flying. Oh yes. Uh, th that's about, that's what the association uh, valued all of the donated hours and materials that they had received. Yeah. So yes, it's definitely in great, great condition when it came to you guys. It, it, was, it was in pretty good. Yeah. It was compared to the Dauntless because we hit, we were, we were finishing the Dauntless at the same time this helicopter came into the collection. So compared to the Dauntless, this was a cakewalk. Um, all we really needed to do was repaint it because the aircraft had been flying. Um, some of the markings were, were, faded and we needed to backdate its markings to how it would have looked in August of 1965. That got a little tricky because unfortunately there weren't a lot of images of the helicopter. And again, going back to those perfecting the imperfections, the few reference shots we had of 361 helicopters in the summer of 1965, no two helicopters were marked the same. And it was small things like the escape, uh, there, there are uh, they're called rescue arrows, but there are brightly colored arrows that point to where if the aircraft crashes, where rescue crews can come in and, and cut away the fuse, you know, cut away to get access to pull people out. Well, those arrows, you look at the pictures of three different helicopters, the arrows are entirely different orientations. They're different sizes. They're different colors. Some have Vietnamese writing or uh, Japanese writing on them because the helicopter squadron had just come from Okinawa. Some don't, some are in English. And we could not, unfortunately, we didn't have a picture of our specific helicopter. So we had to make some sort of law of averages decisions on some of the paint markings. The restoration was further hampered. Unfortunately, the restoration facility we had on Quantico got condemned while we were in it. It was a 1940 seaplane hangar and had long ago ended the useful life, uh, particularly of its heating system. 
Um, so the building got condemned, and so we got displaced. And thankfully, the National Air and Space Museum gave us air ground space at the Uvarhazi Center um, in their restoration shop. And they graciously allowed us to bring both the, the Dauntless and the UH-34 up there. And for about a year, our crew worked out of uh, their shop. Um, and we are forever in their debt to be able to finish both these airplanes in their space. So uh, in any case, the, from, a challenge, from a technical challenge point, the, the helicopter restoration was, was relatively simple. What's really powerful there is the story behind uh, the scene that we're depicting. And, and I, you know, I alluded to sort of the level of research, um, particularly when you talk to the, the, you know, I talked to a several veterans who, uh, who fought in Starlight and were in that LZ that morning. And their, their recollections are sharp as can be even all these years. And it doesn't take much for the emotion of the trauma of that day to come back. And I think we've done a pretty good job of capturing that in the, in the vignette. Uh, I think we did them proud. And, and like Owen alluded to, you know, there's a backstory to even the cast figures. So the pilot, for example, in the UH-34 is, uh, was cast from Mitch Geringer, who was our head of restorations at the time. Uh, the corpsman is was a corpsman uh, and is married to what is married to our uh, project manager. And so, you know, so we the Marines who are carrying the machine gunners, uh, carrying machine guns had the same MOS as as the uh, as machine gunners would have, you know, for Vietnam. The uh, one slightly funny story that came out of that is and it's funny how for all of our efforts to get all the details right, sometimes small things can slip through. We had a variety of subject matter experts come and help us lay out that vignette where we had Marines who were going to be cast stand and get posed by Vietnam era veterans who had carried those weapons, the same kind of guns, and had jumped out of the same kind of helicopter. And so we could position exactly, we wanted to get exactly, if you're running, do you run, you know, you don't run upright, you run in kind of a crouched position. How would you be, you know, if, if you were going to carry uh, two boxes of an extra ammunition, how would you carry them exactly? And so we spent a lot of time playing all this out. What we had, what we had forgotten to think about is a Marine from 2010 timeframe or 2014 timeframe when we were doing this project doesn't hold the rifle of today the same way a Marine held his rifle in 1965. The hand position is, a is different. The where the thumb goes is different. And without any of us noticing, the Marines just defaulted to their training. So they were holding a M14 rifle, standard rifle used in 1965, in the same, just by muscle memory, the way they would hold their M4 carbine of today. And that's how we cast them. Exhibit opens up and sure enough, doesn't take long before Vietnam veterans are, oh, wait a minute, a kid's hand's in the wrong place. That thumb's the wrong way. And of course they're going to catch it. <laughs> and of course they're going to catch it. We get a half million, well, pre-COVID, we are getting a half million visitors a year. And the American public is very good at copy editing. They'll find every typo, misplaced punctuation you can think of, and or they're going to find that error in you use the wrong belt buckle or whatever. Uh, but in this case, they caught the hand and they caught that thumb. And we had to go back and uh, the cast figures are solid. I mean, it's not like we can re easily repose them. We had to break off the hand, recast a new one and, and reattach it because we got it wrong and we, we, we're, we don't do that. So we corrected it. You know, that, that, that's uh, again, going kind of going back to talking to sort of the level of detail that, that we'll go to. 
90% of our visitors would have never known the difference, but that 10% that would, we needed to get it right for them. And we're doing it going forward. Uh, we have a, we're doing a full vignette in our uh, upcoming gallery on uh, Operation Iraqi Freedom, and we're placing a, uh, a Bell UH-1N uh, Huey helicopter in a scene um, from the March to Baghdad. Uh, it's called a FARP, a, a Forward Arming and Refueling Point. That was, it's based, think of it like a, um, a temporary mini airfield. Uh, that can be set up just about along any stretch of road or open piece of ground. And it allows uh, helicopters to be rearmed and refueled much closer to where the battle's being fought. And they don't have to go all the way back to an airfield and then come, you know, go back and forth. And this helicopter that we're putting in, we know was at this particular FARP, which was outside the battle, outside the city of Nazaria at the time of the heavy fighting in that particular city. And we man I managed to find the pilot and co-pilot who predominantly flew it. And in interviewing them, we discovered, for example, the pilot actually gave away his chest protector plate, the piece of body armor that slips inside a vest, uh, a pocket in his, in his vest, to a Marine who hadn't been issued one. So he flew the entire time, the March to Baghdad, with a folded American flag in that chest pocket where his chest protection would go. So our cast figure will have an American flag folded up. You won't be able to see the flag because the flaps closed and you know, all the other gears over it, but the flag will be there. They also told us that they made a, a, they always flew with a box of toilet paper, rolls of toilet paper in the back. And they made it, they would, oftentimes they'd be flying over these long convoys of, of Marine units heading north, fairly low altitude. And inev inevitably somewhere just off the side of the road would be a Marine taking care of business. Um, and they would make a game of trying to chuck a roll of toilet paper at him. And if you could hit him, you got big points. And of course, the Marines who received the toilet paper loved it because you weren't getting rolls of nice toilet paper out in the field. So our helicopter is going to have a box of roll of toilet paper sitting in the back. You know, there's not going to be a label that describes why we leave that. To, you know, we train the docents up and the docents can tell that story. But it's that little extra layer of detail that, that, that we put into these things. I don't know. I think it might be fun for the curators to occasionally just start throwing toilet paper at people. And then that's a great way to start the story. We, there have been contemplations for things like Halloween or April Fools of sort of adding cast figures that then move at various times. That's a possibility for that one. I hadn't thought of sitting there and then chucking toilet paper out at visitors. That that could be fun. That could be fun. <laughs> I don't think it would be hilarious, but <laughs> we used to have we in the Vietnam gallery. There, uh, I think he's still there. We had a very large stuffed rat that we had in the display. That, that's a full immersive, uh, so you have audio and, and that we even keep the temperature a little higher uh, to make it feel like you're in, in Vietnam. And the scene we're depicting was a particular outpost that was besieged by communist forces for uh, 70 plus days, uh, only resupplied by the air. And uh, because you had that many Marines basically living underground in tight spaces, uh, the rat population grew and they got big. Uh, like, small dog size big, according to some of the stories. So we had a big stuffed rat um, that we put in the exhibit. And occasionally, uh, occasionally the exhibit crew would come and move him. So he'd be in a slightly different place. At Christmas time, we put a little Christmas hat on him. You know, so we, we, we're, we're, as much as Marines are very strict and by the book, we, we, we do occasionally have our fun. Look at you guys. You guys can be fun. Exactly. Well, thank you so much for being willing to come on my podcast and talk to us all about the incredible attention to detail that you guys have. Honestly, it's pretty amazing. Thanks. Thanks very much for the opportunity. I really enjoyed it. Great.